Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. You may think you spent a lot of money during the holidays, but it probably wasn't nearly as much as Rudy Giuliani was ordered to pay two Georgia election workers that he defamed. In December, a federal jury in D.C. decided that Trump's former attorney and my predecessor as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York owed $148 million to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, a mother and daughter who suffered after Giuliani accused them of trying to steal the 2020 election. Giuliani's actions in the days since the decision have led the election workers to file yet another lawsuit against him seeking a court order to stop Giuliani from continuing to defame them. So there's a lot to discuss here. I'm joined by my friend Michael Gottlieb, who has been representing the two plaintiffs in their legal pursuits against Giuliani. Michael is a partner at the law firm Wilkie Farr & Gallagher. He formerly served as associate counsel to President Barack Obama. He clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court. And most importantly, of course, he was my colleague on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the hearings of John Roberts and Sam Alito. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Preet, and honored you'd call me a colleague rather than your water boy. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to say intern, but um, <laughs> we've all we've all aged and grown and done many things since then. Seventeen. years I appreciate ago. it. <laughs> so before we get to the case, could you just describe to folks who Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are and were? Sure. So you know, Ruby Freeman is uh, Shea Moss's mother. They are lifelong uh, residents of Atlanta, Georgia. Shay has worked or had worked uh, for Fulton County in its elections department for her entire career since leaving college. It was the only job she ever had. And uh, during the 2020 election, uh, her mom, Ruby Freeman, raised her hand to come in as a temporary worker to help. This was in the middle of COVID. Uh, and so there was an unprecedented flood of absentee ballots to process and count. And her mom raised her hand and the two of them worked together uh, in at State Farm Arena in Atlanta, counting ballots in the 2020 election. And that is how they got mixed up in uh, all of this mess. So to summarize, they are patriotic public servants who worked in support of democracy. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes. So 
you represented them in connection with the lawsuit, the defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani. Could you provide maybe the most damaging examples of what you folks claimed and then proved were defamatory with respect to this mother and daughter? Sure. Um, there's so much of it that it's kind of hard to <laughs> boil it down. Yeah, to, that's why I was asking. Like, <laughs> the war, I mean, it, it's all terrible. But what? what in, maybe let me ask it this way. What were some of the things that Giuliani said that were most damaging to your clients? Sure. So the core of the sort of allegations that he made against our clients and then sort of spread all around the internet were that they were engaged in a plot to rig the election in Georgia for Joe Biden. And that the way they did that was on election night, they allegedly made up an excuse that there had been a water main break. They kicked everybody out of the counting facility in at State Farm Arena. They locked the doors. They cased the joint. They uh, then, when everybody was gone, all the election observers were gone, they then pulled out suitcases of ballots from underneath the table. They scanned them five, six, seven times, manufacturing you know what ranged in his allegations from 30,000 to 100,000 votes uh, for Joe Biden. Then he also alleged that they uh, had uh, a history of voter fraud participation and that earlier in the day they had been seen on video passing around USBs to rig the Dominion uh, voting machines that uh, Giuliani claimed were being used in the facility. That was the sum of the allegations and every single piece of it was false. And was he doing this at a small venue uh, of like three or four drunk friends or some, diff <laughs> or some different platform? Because that's what's important here, it turns out, right? Yeah. So this was a, a story uh, that began on December 3rd at a hearing before the Georgia legislature where the Giuliani legal team presented these claims based on sort of misleadingly cut clips of surveillance video from the night of uh, election night at State Farm Arena. And then they sort of used the social media tools available to them, which were extraordinary, really. I mean, the reach that President Trump's accounts had, that uh, other members of the Giuliani legal team, and then sort of the echo chamber that they had access to, uh, just took this information. And, you know, over the course of a few weeks in December of 2020, really spread it around the world to the tune of, you know, what our expert calculated as hundreds of millions of impressions of these statements generated across social media platforms, traditional media platforms, print. So they they basically took two, you know, patriotic civil servants uh, with no criminal record, no history of anything, and made them sort of the face of election fraud in a matter of a few weeks. And if you can describe how did you counteract the mountains and mountains of evidence that Giuliani had in support of his allegations of election fraud? What's nice about having a podcast, Mike, is you can ask totally improper questions. <laughs> no, I, lo I love it. No, I, I wouldn't object to that one. Um, you know, the, the thing about your question, and it's, this is one of the frustrating things about handling cases in this space and, and handling sort of case involving political disinformation is that the promise of the conspiracy theorist 
is always that proof is just around the corner. Right. It, it, it's coming, right? Winter is coming. It's just like um, infrastructure week. Yes, yeah, it's, it's similar. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's always a week away. Yeah. And the thing about discovery, as you know, is that if There's you a really, it, well, it's not just that, but if, if you really believe what you're saying, then discovery is great because you get subpoena power. Right. So think about what, you know, if Rudy Giuliani really believed all of the things he was saying, think about what he could have accomplished for free in discovery. It wouldn't have even cost him anything. He could have issued third-party subpoenas to Georgia state investigators, to third-party platforms, to social media platforms, to assemble all this evidence uh, using subpoena power, and then use that to prove his defense of substantial truth, which is a defense in a defamation case. And of course, he did none of those things. Not one effort. He didn't even show, you know, we, we subpoenaed in the case the Georgia state investigators who looked into these claims and wrote reports and concluded an investigation that ex fully exonerated Ruby and Shea and also everybody else who was involved at State Farm Arena and found them to have been engaged in normal ballot processing and counting. Um, you know, we subpoenaed them and deposed them and Giuliani didn't even show up to the deposition to ask them questions. So one of the frustrating things about seeing how he then reacts to this um, after the verdict and claiming that he didn't have a opportunity to present evidence or uh, is saying it was a sham trial or things like that is, you know, he, he had fast powers granted to him if he wanted to actually prove this stuff to be true. And he didn't even try, he didn't even show up. Well, one of the reasons why he had a ruling issued against him even before the trial that was mostly for the purpose of determining damages was his failure to be responsive in discovery. Am I right? Yeah, it's the the dog ate my homework defense. Right. Can I ask you, not as a legal question, but what the hell was going on there? <laughs> what's, what's your theory about why he would basically mosey into a default judgment? It's not quite a default judgment, but but mosey into a, a judgment against him that left to the jury just a question of how much money he should be able to be forced to pay. Well, it was a default judgment. It was just an unusual default judgment. Right. So it was a, usually when we're talking about default judgments, we're talking about, you know, Al Qaeda or Iran gets sued. They don't show up for anything. Yeah. Uh, and you get a default judgment and then you proceed. He showed like up that. for some stuff, but not, but not for, for other stuff. Yeah. He showed up to litigate the motion to dismiss and then to do a few things and then decided that he wasn't interested in the case anymore and stopped participating. Uh, and you know, but, but uh, in what his, universe does that make any rationals? I mean, I guess, I guess one question I have for you is if it doesn't prejudice your, your client, if to answer is Rudy Giuliani, a rational actor in any sense, <laughs> in any sense. Yes. Uh, okay. I think in what, in what sense, okay. In what sense is Rudy Giuliani a rational actor? Well, I mean, I deposed him. Mm -hmm. He showed up for the deposition. How'd that go? Uh, he was, he, he answered questions rationally. <clears throat> during the deposition. So, I mean, I think there are certain things that he does and did that that are rational. He clearly has a press strategy and an audience that he speaks to. And I think that there is a reason for uh, what he does with that audience. It is, I think, designed to uh, provide a source of income and and sustain a, an image that he believes he's created for himself. So I think there's there's reason behind all that. I don't think there was a 
rational strategy to showing up and then defaulting and then showing up again to contest damages at trial. Um, Not just damages at trial. During the trial, I wanted to ask you this since I um, found out you were available to come on the show. During the trial, when he goes out to a podium, he says, all that stuff I said, it's totally true, even though it had already been determined by the judge to not be true. Just as, as a person, as a lawyer, what did you mutter or how did you react when you saw the defendant doing that? Well, I mean, I had sort of two reactions to it. I think the first of which you understand as a former prosecutor. I mean, if you saw the defendant in your case go out and do that, that that's a gift, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's true. That's, so that's a gift. And we knew that that was going to get in front of the jury and that that was not going to end well from him, for him. Um, but on behalf of my clients, you know, it's frustrating because there's been a default judgment in the case. He stipulated to liability before the entry of the default judgment. So he agreed he wasn't going to contest that the statements were false, that they were made with actual malice, that it caused harm to our clients, that he, he stipulated to those things. So then seeing him out in public undermining that is frustrating yeah. because one of the objectives of a defamation case is to restore your client's reputation. Yeah, and so, stop the harm. Yeah. You want to stop the harm. And, you know, you mentioned before that we've filed this follow-on lawsuit. I mean, one of the reasons we had to file that is to prevent him from, you know, continuing to go out and saying these same things because it, it does cause harm. And you, you could see in the evidence in the case the spikes in the threats and the sort of derogatory online comments about our clients that would happen after major events. And so every time you have a, somebody like Rudy Giuliani or, or, or Trump or whoever going out and saying things like this about our clients, it does cause them additional harm. So um, it's a serious thing that, that we have to take action against, but it just as far as, you know, from a, from a litigation perspective, as soon as he said that, I thought he was done. Yeah. Could you describe for listeners what the legal strategy was in the damages trial and what stories you told and how you wanted to convince the jury that they should render such a sizable damages verdict? Yeah. So... It was challenging in the sense that we had a default judgment, so liability was established, but to demonstrate, to prove the elements of reputational harm and also punitive damages, we had to get into the, you know, why the statements about our clients were so harmful, how far they traveled, you know, the fact that Giuliani was repeating them. So a lot of the sort of liability issues that you would think about in a case like this had to come in, but in really abbreviated form. So we, you know, we only had about three days of trial to fit a fairly long story into. Um, but the, you know, the idea was to show the jury in very real concrete terms, the harm that our clients suffered and to demonstrate that, um, you know, Giuliani, um, had been a proximate cause of that harm in, in, in terms of the timing of what he said and how, threats to them followed, but to really let the jury feel and experience those threats. So we had voicemail messages that Ruby and Shay received. We had text messages that they had received. We had um, physical mail that had been sent to Ruby Freeman's house 
that had these just grotesque pictures and drawings in them. Um, so we had you know physical, you know, physical evidence um, yeah. to actually let the jury sort of see what it looked like. And then we had our clients, you know, take the stand and testify under oath to tell from their perspective how they had experienced, you know, going from, you know, completely private, unknown um, civil servants to these infamous um, face of election fraud, you know, basically overnight. And they heard the jury heard stories of how people came to perform a citizen's arrest at. Um, yeah. Shea Moss's grandmother's house, and they heard story about how Shea Moss, and this is the one that I think got to me the most, but uh, when Shea testified, she told the story about how when um, all this happened, it was during COVID, and her son was 14 years old and was at home doing remote school, and he used his mom's phone as a, you know, like a Wi-Fi hotspot type of way of logging into remote school, and he kept getting kicked off of class because people were calling um, Shay's phone because she got doxxed um, and they were calling, making these vile, racist, just awful threats. Um, so you just imagine this 14-year-old getting booted from his classes um, during COVID because these people are harassing his mom based on just terrible lies. Um, so you know, the strategy was to, to make that feel and, and seem real which it was, I think, and um, and then to convince the jury that you know the worth of someone's reputation um, is not a product of their income bracket, that you measure harm to reputation based on the damage that's been done, not based on you know lost business deals or or how much. But, but money also they a theory that you pursued, which was to to explain to the jury how much it would cost to restore the reputation. Is that a, is that a common? strategy that is a strategy that um I, I would say we've we've been working on for a few years this is not the first case that that we worked on that theory with this particular expert dr ashley humphreys there's one case prior to this that um uh, didn't wind up going to trial where we had developed that theory and worked with dr humphreys on um, presenting it, and then she wound up being the testifying expert in the E. Jean Carroll case, right. uh, where she used a similar theory of cost to repair. But it's a it's a simple theory. It's the it's essentially imagine that an arsonist comes in and burns down your house. You want to figure out how much damage did the fire do, and one of the ways you figure that out is you ask how much would it cost to rebuild it, replace and, the house, right? You know that might be a function of the value of the house, but it, depending on if you imagine, and we, we use this example with the jury, if, if you imagine that not just the house burned down, but they used hazardous chemicals that you know totally corroded the foundation of the home and made it unlivable, such that it was impossible or, or difficult to repair it in that location, that the cost might be you know, far in excess of whatever the value of the house might have been before the fire. So we, we tried to come up with a, a straightforward way of explaining the concept of how somebody who you know wasn't a millionaire um, could still suffer, you know, tens of millions of dollars in reputational damage, and yeah. and I, I think it, I think it uh, stuck. Cassio, I know this is another question that I'm not asking you in your capacity as a lawyer, but as a person, did the facts of this case make you angry? Like, what what emotions did you experience, if any, in litigating this case on behalf of Ruby and Shay? Wow, um, yeah, 
This anger. isn't this is this isn't cable news, buddy. <laughs> uh, I think like you know whatever the full twelve stages are: um, uh, anger, rage. Um, I mean, look, as you describe the facts, as I've read them, um, and m- my first encounter with your clients through the January sixth committee proceedings, I mean, I got angry from my seat. Yeah. So there are pieces of it that are uh, that are heartbreaking and depressing. You know, but heartbreaking for Ruby and Shay and their family, and and sort of fill you with rage um, on behalf of them, but also on behalf of all the other people who worked in Fulton County elections and at State Farm, who were all sort of branded as, you know, criminals and crooks. These people were working, you know, 16, 18 hour days in the middle of the pandemic to help process votes. So on on their behalf, just anger and rage and all of those um, emotions. And then just, you know, some amount of frustration and, and depression over the fact that so many people come to believe things like these USB allegations that, are, I mean, it's they're, they're, when you actually break them down pre, you know, as a litigator or prosecutor, and you actually think about them in terms of proof and you realize how absurd they are, like how many, <laughs> how many just logical questions people were not asking, like, you know, this alleged USB video that they said where our clients were passing USBs in order to rig the vote counts that, you know, the big bump that happened for Biden, Biden votes. And it turns out that video that is the source of that alleged passing off of a USB, which was actually a ginger mint, was the day after the election. So it was after, like, we didn't even get into any of this stuff in the, in the trial, but like, so there's, there's, there's just frustration with how easily people can come to believe some of this. But then I would tell you emotionally, you know, there was, it was uplifting and hopeful at the end of the trial that even before the verdict, it was uplifting seeing the power that the justice system seeing the inversion of power of Ruby and Shay testifying under oath on the stand, telling their truth and establishing a clear, unimpeachable historical record about what happened. Um, and that was uplifting. A story of vindication. Absolutely. So the question I've gotten most frequently with respect to your clients, uh, in particular since the, the judgment of $148 million by the jury, is how do they get it? Because Giuliani doesn't have $148 million. How does that process work, if you can say, and how much might they ultimately see? So the answer to the question is a little different now than it was the day after the judgment because um, Mr. Giuliani filed for bankruptcy. So, But he um, can't discharge this debt, right? That's right. So um, we believe, although it hasn't, this hasn't been litigated yet, but we believe this debt is not dischargeable. But what happens when somebody files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy is the uh, other litigation that exists out that is related to the bankruptcy all gets stayed. So, for example, our you know additional suit that we filed seeking injunctive relief is stayed at this point. Um, but you know there will be a bankruptcy process. Our clients will uh, be uh, involved uh, to some extent in that, and uh, will seek to recover from whatever distribution uh, is made. 
and there's there is a path for this. This isn't unprecedented. So you know, in Alex the Alex Jones case, the Sandy Hook families you know have this very large judgment against him, and he's filed for bankruptcy, and the families are pursuing uh, relief against him, and uh, that so there's a there's sort of a playbook to follow for uh, Ruby and Shay, but also some of the other creditors of Mr. Giuliani. So I mean, it, it won't be an easy process, and I, I'm, I'm not going to. You know, no one should think that they're going to recover $148 million through it, certainly. But there is money for them to recover through that process. And then there are, you know, they have an ongoing lawsuit uh, against the Gateway Pundit and and its founder in Missouri. And there are other people who continue to defame them. And they are, uh, our clients are willing to continue taking this fight to the people that that want to bring it to them. I should mention this case is not uh, just a it's not not a Michael Gottlieb case uh, or a Wilkie Farr case. This this is a case that you know we brought in partnership with the amazing people at Protect Democracy and the project that they established called Law for Truth and the work that they're doing is really extraordinary work that is a, a bipartisan or nonpartisan work designed to protect victims of disinformation and uh, along with our co-counsel uh, Vaughn DeBose of DeBose Miller. So I you know, I would commend to folks who want to learn more about this to check out the, the work that the, the good people at Law for Truth and United to Protect Democracy are doing. Well, you keep at it, my friend. Congratulations on all this very important work, not just for the, your particular clients, but for lots of other folks who hopefully will not be defamed and attacked in this way, in the way that they were. So I'm, I'm very proud of your work. It's great and important work. Um, thanks so much, Michael Gottlieb. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com insider. If you like what we do, Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The editorial producer is Noah Ozilai. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Nat Wiener, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 
Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. <laughs> 